Jesus said some really far out things, okay? And um, uh, one of the things that he said that was really far out is we've heard it preached and we talked about it so much that it's not that big far out thing for us anymore, but it was really far out in that day and time where he said it. And um, because uh, they just, and even in this passage, you'll see, they just looked at him and it's just some really, really weird things that, 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 why are you saying that? And so we want to talk through that today and hopefully we'll talk through uh, this, this weird thing that he said and also how it kind of affects us uh, as well. It's Luke chapter 18, if you have your Bible. And in Luke chapter 18, a very familiar story comes up and uh, it starts like this. What we have up here, Amy, a certain ruler, uh, sometimes it's called the rich young ruler. This story comes up in three different uh, gospels, uh, a certain ruler. Now, what's a ruler mean? Well, it doesn't really mean like what we think. A ruler is kind of like a king or somebody a ruler was just a person of authority. And in those times, in first century Jerusalem, it would have been a religious ruler. He would have been, uh, I'm not stretching it too much to say he would have been like a board member or something. Okay, that's a little stretch. But he would have been a leader in the synagogue. He would have been someone of influence, someone that people looked up to. In other, other uh, stories, it says the ruler came and knelt down in front of Jesus. So he approached Jesus with humility. Even though he was a person of influence in society, he had the humility to kneel down before Jesus. So a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what would your answer be on that kind of uh, stuff? Jesus gives some answers that I wouldn't have given. And I think also gives some answers that you wouldn't have given as well. Um, and Jesus says, doesn't even answer the question. Jesus says something that I'm not having time to go into today. There's... There's about five sermons in these eight verses that I'm talking about. And I don't have time to preach all five to you. But I'm, so I'm going to have to leave a lot of things out. And this is one of the things I'm going to have to leave out today. It was like we had a basketball camp last week. And we had like 65 little rugrats out there. And, and they're doing everything wrong. And you just can't tell them everything because you're overwhelming them. It's like trying to drink water out of a fire hose or something. So you have to leave a lot out and hopefully come back and do it another day. So that's what I'm going to have to do here. I'm going to have to hopefully leave a lot out and maybe come back and do it another day. This verse is a sermon in itself, but I'm going to have to leave that part out. Next slide, please. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you, you, you know the commandments. Now, I wouldn't tell anybody that. I would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved because that's what my Bible teaches me. I, I wouldn't teach anybody you're saved by you do, but Jesus responds in a way that I wouldn't respond. I hope it's not a way that you would respond either, but he says, you know, the commandments. And then he lists some of the commandments. He lists the commandments that have to do with our relationship one with another. It doesn't have to, the commandments five through 10 commandments, one through four have to do with our relationship with God commandments, five through 10, our relationship with one another. So he lists these ones that have a relationship with one another, adultery and murder and stealing and false testimony and honoring your father and mother. And the next slide, and, the, and he comes back and says, hey, no problem. All these things I've kept since I was a boy. Now, which I probably can infer that he came from a religious home. He was raised steeped in Judaism, that we would understand. 
And he said, all these things I have learned, I have kept since I was a boy. You know what? Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, oh, man, get real. You haven't done that. He doesn't correct him. So I think we can kind of assume that this was a leader. Uh, he came, he knelt before Jesus, and in, in, in I think Mark's gospel says this story, knelt before Jesus. So he, was, he had respect for Jesus, had some humility about himself, even though he's a ruler. And then he was, he was raised in a religious home, and he was probably a pretty good person. And in fact, he goes, I've kept all of those. And then Jesus replies, when Jesus heard this, he said, you need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Now, I wouldn't have answered the guy that way. I, somebody wants to inherit eternal life. Someone wants to get saved. And I say, OK, uh, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and that'll get you saved. And no, I wouldn't say that. No theologian would say that Jesus says it. That's, that's just really odd to me. Next slide. When he heard this, the rich young ruler, when he heard this, like go sell everything, it became very sad. Now, bad translation. It's a, it's a, well, it's just an okay translation. You know something's odd? Here's what the word means. The same word that's translated sad here is the exact same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died when it's translated that he was overwhelmed with grief, thinking about what was going to happen the next day. So this guy was torn up. Uh, this, this guy um, left, and he was more than just sad. He was really torn up, and he was torn up because he was very wealthy. And so there's immediate conflict between following Jesus and the amount of money that this guy has. And so that's how our story continues here. Jesus looked at him and says, how hard it is for a rich man. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's, it's easier for, 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 you to, for you to go through a camel, to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the people that were the people that were listening to this, they were just astounded and they said, then who can be if, if this guy can't be saved? If rich people, rich was a sign of God's blessing in that day and time, if if they can't be saved, who in the world can be saved? So they thought this guy was a pretty if this guy can't get saved, so I think that adds up to that. They knew this guy was a pretty decent fellow. And if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus finishes, it says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, the outlandish statement is several of them. But the one that we hear a lot, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the only time Jesus ever said that to anybody. All the other interactions that he had with people about everlasting life and eternal life and inheriting eternal life, he never used that with anybody else. Why do you use it with this guy? And I think it probably means that he knew, and he put he right his finger on the stumbling block in this guy's life. The stumbling block in your life may not have been money, but for this guy, the stumbling block was money. Jesus deals with us individually. We all come to Christ the same way. We all come to Christ 
um, by grace through faith. And we all come to Christ through the cross and the power of Jesus Christ. No one earns that. But there are things that uh, we may have to deal with in order for Jesus to become first in our life. There may be some things that we have to deal with but have all of God in our life. And God deals with us individually. So the only time in all of scripture that he deals with someone and says, you, have, you need to give all your money away. But Jesus knows us and he knows you. And he can put his finger on what that issue is for you. And so for you, it's, it's something else. And for me, it's something else. And for you, it's something else. And for him, it was money. And, but God knows us all individually. And, and God is not a cookie cutter God that he deals with all of us the exact same way. We all come to his son, Jesus, through the cross, of course. But along the way, there's, there's, there's things he's got to deal with us about. This guy, he had to deal with the money. You, he's got to deal with I can remember when he dealt with me about something. I, you know, some of you know that I was a basketball coach for 14 years at the high school and college level. And last year I was a basketball coach. I was 34. I got saved about four months earlier. I got saved in August of 1993 and it was like December and it was basketball season. And I had a high school coaching job in Indiana and it was a good size high school. And, and I, um, we were playing a rival and I got, I walked out of the locker room after just being interviewed by two radio stations and the gym was full and the bands were playing. It was a big deal. And I walked out on that court and I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And I didn't hear an audible voice from God, but God put his finger on basketball for me that day. And I knew that if I was going to be what God wanted me to be, I was going to have to deal with how basketball made me feel like a really cool, big time guy, really important. It was all flesh for me. I was a brand new Christian, too immature to be able to handle all of that. And I ended up resigning because I wanted God more than I wanted to be a basketball coach. And he dealt with me personally. Now, there are basketball coaches that are Christians, obviously. Some people could deal with it. But he dealt with me personally because he knew, at least at that time in my Christian walk, I couldn't deal with it. And because I wanted Jesus more than I wanted basketball, I walked away from it. Because God dealt with me individually. He dealt with the rich young ruler individually. Some of you have come into my office and you've said things like, um, this job that I have, I'm asked to do things that I know aren't right. And I just really feel like God is convicting me about it and wants me to change jobs. And we talk about it back and forth and so forth and so on. You see what God's doing? He's putting his finger on a personal issue. He didn't deal with you about a job, didn't deal with you about a job, but he dealt with someone that needs to be dealt with about a job. We don't have a cookie cutter God. We have a God who deals with us all individually in the areas and the ways we need to be dealt with. I've had men and women 
come to me and say, you know, this girl I'm dating, this guy I'm dating, I, I'm not sure that God wants me to continue dating them. I like them. We have a good time together. But I'm not sure that this is the person that God wants me to marry. And, and it's because they, their commitment to God is less than theirs or they're not the type of Christian that they know that they ought to marry or something like that. And God puts his finger on that. And, so you get, and, and he puts his finger on that situation, that woman, that guy, and said, you need to deal with that. Some people have put their finger on other issues. For the rich young ruler, it was money. He's never put his finger on money in, in, in my life. I, I, I was not. My dad never made any more than about $15 an hour working for a Kroger company. We never had any money. Dad pastored little churches part-time on the week. We never had any money. So, I mean, money was, I was, never put it on me, but put that on me, but he put it on the rich young ruler. He may put something different on you and something different on you and something different on you. He's a personal God. He's not a cookie cutter God. He doesn't deal with us all in the same way. And so for this rich young ruler, he comes and says, listen, money is a big deal for you and it's going to hold you back. So he says something outlandish that he doesn't say to anybody else in all of scripture, go sell everything you have. And the Bible says the rich young ruler didn't. The script, this, this version of the story doesn't say it. The other story says he went away, he walked away sad, or he walked away sorrowful because he would not deal with the issue that God put on him. You know, you cannot teach the Bible without seeing that money has a corrupting, can have a corrupting influence on us. You cannot teach the Bible. Money is not evil. Money is not evil. Money is not um, evil at all. Money is amoral. There's no morality that comes with, with, with money. This microphone is, 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 is neither good nor bad. It has no morality about it. It's amoral. Uh, the only thing money is is a piece of paper. It's a means of exchange. There's no morality that comes with money. The morality comes with money on how I deal with it and my attitude with it. Money is not bad. Money is good. It, it, it's, it's a way to have an exchange. We can't hardly have a society. If, 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 if we didn't have money, we would have to exchange something to buy stuff. Money's not wrong. It's my attitude toward money that can be deadly for me and makes Jesus say something to this man and maybe something to others that says, you know what? How hard it is. How hard it is for a rich man. To enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, a camel can go through the eye of a needle easier than a rich man can get into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot deny that money can have, can have, doesn't have to have, can have a corrupting influence on you and a corrupting influence on me. Over 2,000 verses in all of God's word has to do with money. <laughs> you know many, how many have to do with the cross? About 50. 2,000 verses have, have something to do with money. It must be an issue that God knew was going to cause us some real grief. 
Now, I don't have time to go through 2,000 verses, okay? Let me go through five or six right here that talk a little bit about the corrupting influence on money. Now, first of all, say, well, I don't need to listen to this because I'm not wealthy. Um, Let me tell you something. Some of the poorest people I know have a problem with money because they think if they'll just have more money, everything will be okay. That if they just had a little more, that their problems in life would go away. So it's not just the wealthy that have issues with money. Any of us can have issues with money. If I think my life would be a whole lot better if I have a bigger fill in the blank, if I have a nicer car, if I have a nicer house, you know what? I'm going to have the same problems in that nicer house than I have in the house right now. And so, so you don't need, it's not just the wealthy that have struggle with money, the poor or the middle income can have struggle with money because they think money is going to get them happiness in life, just like maybe a wealthy person could. Let's go through some of these scriptures here. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who, listen, want to get rich, that's the key thing. Is getting rich a problem? Um, no, not if you handle it right. But those who desire to get rich. Those who are eager to get rich. Those who want to get rich just because they can be rich. A, a lot of people I know that would be rich, wealthy. Uh, it's been a serendipity of other things. It's been, been a serendipity of them working hard. It's been a serendipity of, of God's blessing in their life. It's been a serendipity of things just fell into place for them. You know what a serendipity is. That's something that you find as you're looking for something else. Those who are eager to get rich, just for riches sake, that's, that, that could be an issue. And Paul writes to Timothy, says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Because if I want to get rich, if I have that desire to be rich, you know what? I'll cut a corner there. I'll compromise there. I'll lie there. I'll cheat that person there. Because what's important to me is I want to get rich. And the text says, God's word says, people who want to get rich, they fall into all kinds of temptation trap. You see, it's not just being rich. It's the desire. It's the attitude toward money. Scripture continues. What else do we have? Have you heard that money is the root of all evil? Well, that's not in the Bible. It's the love of money. That, that could easily be translated the lust of money. Money's not evil. Money's not the root of all evil. It's our attitude toward it. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, here it is, eager for money. Eager for money. Have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What's the next scripture that we have? Now, now Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul is telling a young preacher, he says, now you, he's saying, Timothy, tell your people this. Command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. As a preacher, 
He commands Timothy and by way of God's word commands me that those who are rich in this present world command them not to put their hope, not to put their faith, not to put their trust in that. Because money can be so corrupting, it can be something that you hope in. And it's something that you put your confidence in and something that you put your security in. Money's not wrong. Money's not bad. But every now and then you need a preacher. You need somebody to come to us and make sure that it's not being a corrupting influence in your life because it's really easy. It's really easy. And I need somebody to come to me and you need someone to come to you and make a check. Is money corrupting you? Is, is money getting you to do something you probably know you shouldn't do or wouldn't do? That's what Paul is telling the young preacher. It's just command those. Tell those who are rich in this present world. He doesn't say tell those who are rich in the present world that they're all honorary sinners and they shouldn't have all the money. He doesn't say that. He says just tell those that are rich not to put their hope in it. He didn't, he didn't tell you. Tell those in your church all those that are rich to give all their money away and, 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 and give it to the poor. He doesn't say that. He just says, don't put your hope in it. Don't put your confidence in it. What else do we have? Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God is your fortress. God is your security. God is where your hope is. Sue will tell me that every now and then as I'll be thinking about something. And I'm almost 60, so I look at my retirement accounts a little more than some of you who are 30 look at yours. And, and she'll remind me every now and then. And I say, wow, you know, I mean, you know. I don't know how many more years am I going to go? Am I going to go four more years, five more years? You know, you know, we're going to be okay in retirement. And she'll remind me. She'll say, Mark, God will take care of us. She'll say, God will take care of us. I'll drive past a sheriff's sale and see this house that's going, that's all beat up and going to be auctioned off. I say, yeah, Sue, what do we flip that house and make a little money and put it into, and, and, and Sue doesn't want to do that. And, and she'll say, Mark, God will take care of us. There's nothing wrong with flipping a house. No, nothing wrong with flipping a house. Not at all. But unless my attitude about that is that I have got to make sure that I take care of myself and do it outside of the will of God, not factoring in him and all of this. And, and Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says, says, be free from that. Why are you doing Why do you want to flip that house, Mark? Why is it you want to flip that house? There could be a good and godly reason to flip that house. And that, that, that could be okay. Nothing wrong with flipping a house. But why do you want to do that? It's your attitude, Mark. It's your attitude. What else do we have? This is an interesting verse. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It's, it's the attitude. And I've just come to check you today. That God must have, Jesus must have saw something on the rich young ruler. Must have put his finger on something in this person's life. And I wonder if I need that checkup or you need that checkup to make sure that money's not being a corrupting influence 
in my life. And so that I wouldn't end up one day with an attitude toward money that's going to keep me out of the kingdom of heaven. Because it's how hard it is, the Bible says. How hard it is for a rich man. Well, Mark, what do you think that really means, Mark? I think it means how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what I think it means. Because money can be corrupting. It can be corrupting. What else do we have? The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Hope and money. Security and money. Do I have another one? No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Either you'll love the one or hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. So what was the problem with the rich young ruler? Why did he go away sorrowful? Why did he go away grieved? We don't know because it doesn't tell us. I can maybe speculate on some of the problems that I see in my life and some of the problems that are, we see in 2018. I wonder if, if the rich young ruler had an ownership issue and kind of thought that his money was his and kind of said, mine, that's a huge issue. Bible says we're stewards. Bible says we're stewards. I think this is the hardest thing about money for us to understand, me included. Because you know what we want to say? Well, I worked hard for that money. I, I sweat for that money. I worked overtime for that money. I put in 60 hours a week for that money. And all that is maybe true. But the Bible says that our relationship with money is that of a steward, that God is the owner. And we manage it. We are a steward. He tells a parable one day. And you know what a parable is? A parable is a story that Jesus made up. Okay, it's not a true story. It's a story that Jesus made up to make a point. And in Matthew chapter 25, he tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is going to go on a journey and calls his servants and entrust his wealth to them. And then you get this whole story about he gave one man five talents and another man two talents. A talent, listen, a talent was just a unit of measure. It was like we talk today, a unit of measure could be a, a pound or something. A Roman talent was 71 pounds. And he says a man was going on a journey and he trusted his servants with some of his money. One man he trusted five talents, another man he trusted two talents, another man he trusted one talent according to his ability. The key word there, it says the man that was going on a journey entrusted his wealth with the servants. He entrusted his stuff with the servants. And the servants were using his stuff. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through the whole story, but God expected them to use his stuff wisely and to be good stewards for his stuff. But the key thing there is not their stuff. It was his stuff, his wealth, his goods. 
I just wonder if the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful after Jesus told him to sell all his stuff, if he had a his stuff problem, if he thought it was mine. Mine runs really deep in all of us, doesn't it? It's the essence of what the Bible calls the sinful nature. It's mine. It happens very young, doesn't it? How early does your child say mine? It cuts deep in us. And especially in this area of our money. And one way of money can be a corrupting influence. I'm wondering, I'm guessing, I'm speculating. Was this the way it was with this guy in this story who went away sorrowful? What Did he have a mine problem? Christopher used to, we don't do it, for some reason we don't eat them that much, but there used to be something at Wendy's, maybe they still have them, called sea salt french fries. And Christopher was very young. Remember those, Christopher? Christopher is very young, and he loved sea salt French fries. And so I'd order him some sea salt French fries, and I'd reach over and grab one. And from a very young age, he goes, Dad, they're mine. Now, I said the same thing you all as parents said. I looked at him and said, boy. I said, who bought you those French fries? God bought us our French fries. I worked hard for that, Mark. Put in 60 hours a week. I know, I know you did. Who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the energy to work hard? Who, who has blessed you by living in a country where you're free and can earn an income? And, and who, who, who gave you that ability to do all that? Mine. For the first three years of my ministry, I pastored in the Methodist church. I was in school and seminary and pastored a couple little Methodist churches. The tradition was in those, the tradition in those Methodist churches were that when the offering is played is passed, the ushers stand at the back and when the offering is received, then everyone stands up and they walk the offering back to the front and they place it on a table, probably the communion table. And as they walk it back up, back front, uh, up front, everybody who's standing will sing something. They may sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I came along and wanted to do something new, so... We start singing, give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. And then I found this little story in, in, in 1 Corinthians 29, and I found a course that went along with it. This says, we give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust O oh Lord, 
from thee. That's from 1 Corinthians 29. Um, David is raising money to build the temple. And you got six or seven chapters of David and how he's raising this money and people were giving the money to build this beautiful temple for God. And at the end of all of that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 29, David says these words and he say, says it to the people in, in a, a prayer. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And somebody came along one day and wrote, we give thee but thine own. Whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. A trust, O Lord, from thee. I don't know about the rich and ruler. I really don't. I'm speculating. I know I am. But did he have a mine problem? Did he see himself as the owner instead of the steward of what God has given him? Like many of you, I have been there when a baby has been born and the baby doesn't come into this world with anything. Naked as a jaybird and I've often thought, what a wonderful, I'm, I'm not saying we should do this, but this would be a marvelous theological statement to make. That when we die, if we're in the coffin, the same way we came into this world. Now, I'm not saying we should do that because that would be weird. <laughs> but what a marvelous theological statement to make. I came into this world with nothing and I'm going out of this world with nothing. And all I've had from birth to death is what God has given me. And I hope I've been a good steward of that. We give thee but thine own. This is probably the most counter-cultural message that I could preach in Xenia or L.A. or Dallas or Chicago. This thought here, because we are a people that say mine. I'm just talking about human beings. And every now and then you need someone to come along to you and remind you. that we are stewards. God is the owner and what we have is on loan from him. In the end of that little story about the talents, five talents, two talents, one talents, and the five talent guy, he goes out and doubles it and God's, the guy comes back and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, there's a line in there and it says one day the owner came back to settle accounts. And one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to settle accounts. 
And he's going to say, Mark. He's going to say, David. He's going to say, Karen. He's going to say, Sue. He's going to say, Harold. He's going to say, Louis. He's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? And to the person that he gave one talent, that remember that story? The person, he said, well, I know you're a tough guy. I just went out and buried it, and here, here's your talent back. And you remember what the guy said? He says, you, you wicked servant. You didn't do anything with what I gave you. So whatever God has given me, health or money or whatever, he wants me to use and do something good with it. But as a steward... I came to remind you today of something you already know. Money can corrupt. The scripture says many people have fallen from the faith because they've got their eyes on money. Hear me again if you didn't hear me the first time. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is not evil. Money is good. Making money is good. Making lots of money is good if you handle it right. If your attitude toward it is right. If you always have something in your spirit that says we give thee but thine own. Whatever the gift may be. One little thing at the very end of that passage, and I'm going to finish. They say, well, who can be saved then if this guy can't be saved? He's a wealthy guy. He's a good guy. He's from a religious family. Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with, with man, this is impossible. With God, it's possible. You see, I need God to come into my life and change the way that I think about money. Because the way I naturally think about money is mine. And I need God to move on me. I need God to do something that only he can do and change me on the inside so I think about money in a correct way. So I don't think about money just in a natural way. What is it? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man, he can't figure out anything about God. Naturally, it's mine. But when God moves on you in a supernatural way and by his grace and by his spirit does something in you, then you can learn to say thine. By his grace. And that's not a decision you make. With man, that's impossible. But when God comes and does something in your life and changes you from the inside out, the corrupting influence on money can leave and you can see yourself as a steward and you can use it for good and godly purposes all the time knowing it's not mine, it's thine. And the reason that can happen is because the power that's in the cross and the cross is just not a, something that's going to get me to heaven one day. It's, it's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is something that can totally change my life. And totally change the way I think about something. And can even do the almost impossible. Make me say thine instead of mine. And that's why every Sunday. We come to the table. 
not just to wave our ticket to heaven, but to remember there is power in this blood of Jesus Christ that can make you do something that in and of yourself is impossible, but you can do it because God can make all things possible through his grace and by his spirit. Can our servers come to the table, please? Father, I'm preaching to myself today because I'm almost 60 and I look at my retirement accounts a little more than I used to. And I do the math a little more than I used to. And none of that is wrong in and of itself. But Father, help me not to rely on that. Help me know that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Whether my retirement account is doing well or whether it's not. Help me to live in such a way that I don't claim to be the owner. Help me to live in a grateful, gracious way. And I'm a steward of what you've given me. And I'm thankful for the opportunities that I've had and that I do have. And I pray you'd help every single one of us with this. And may we be people that can manage money and not let money manage us. Let's never fall to temptations. And you would ne never have to come to us one day and say, you know, Mark, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go through the kingdom of heaven. Help us as we come to the table in Jesus' name. Amen.